Will Roe v. Wade really be overturned? And if it is, what does that mean? And what does it not mean? And what don't we know about abortion as Christians that we probably should? And we discuss why the seemingly insurmountable obstacle that was Roe v. Wade, should it be overturned, has been on shaky ground for years. Plus, a look back at one of history's most important abolitionists so that we can learn from him how to fight for what's right in the same way. This is your favorite night of the week, The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. Okay, everyone, welcome in to the deep end. It has been too long, has it not? Since we've been together two weeks, and what a set of two weeks we have had. (laughs) Who would have known? I took a terrible week off. I mean, honestly, I should have just got it through and done a deep, uh, deep end last week, but I didn't, and I'm sorry, but I'm back today to maybe take a look back over the two weeks and give you some give you some guidance here as Christians for what we need to do in our response. This is The Deep End. It's season five, episode 26, and I am your humble host on most evenings, Tim Hatch at Tim Hatch Live. Make sure that you're liking, subscribing, and clicking the notification bell to get all the updates to your smartphone whenever we go live. Okay, so this is really good news, right? And I'm not even going to play the really good news bumper because there's other really good news that we can talk about. Um, Roe v. Wade is coming to a justifiable end. The Supreme Court decision of 1973 that created the fictional right of a woman to murder her unborn baby in the womb through a doctor's assistance. Really, it was the woman (laughs) allowing or asking the doctor to do it. That right, that unseen, invisible right on the Constitution of the United States is no more, at least from a federal level. Uh, Four justices, all Republican appointees, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Comey Barrett, voted with Samuel Alito to overturn Roe. Three justices, all Democratic appointments, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan dissented. And then one spineless Chief Justice, Justice Roberts, abstained. So what are we supposed to think about this? And what isn't so about abortion? First off, did you know, progressive woke scolds listening to me today, that it was seven straight cisgendered males that enshrined this constitutional right into existence? Yeah. Since when do we listen to cisgendered straight males? Like, seriously. And their decision was largely based on a woman's right to privacy based on the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. The court reasoned that outlawing abortions would infringe on a woman's right to privacy for several reasons. And I want to give you some of those reasons in the original case to show you the mindset behind abortion and why I believe we are on the precipice of a, a, a large-scale turning point in human history regarding this, this very contentious issue, but very moral issue. So the reasoning from the court back in 1973, let me put this on the screen. That an unwanted pregnancy, and this is literally the words from the court, may, quote, force a woman into a distressful life and future, end quote. That caring for the child may tax the mother's physical and mental health, and because of that, there may be, quote, distress for all concerned associated with the unwanted child. So look at the words from the court's original 
opinion on the matter of Roe v. Wade, what enshrined this fake constitutional right into law, that a baby would force a woman into a distressful life and future. Is that true? Like, are there moms out there that can just put in the comments right now, categorically untrue? I mean, even if you have a baby when you didn't want one or plan one, does that baby automatically mean distress in future all the time? I mean, and I know the word there is may, but perhaps the issue is the heart of the woman and not the life of the child. Perhaps the issue is the faith of the woman, her connection to her father in heaven, and not necessarily the unexpected life within her body. And then the idea that she would suffer physical and mental health. This is how you get late-term abortions right here. It's physical and mental health. So even if I have mental health issues, I can abort my baby at the behest of a doctor. Distress and, 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 and uh, distress for all concerns. I mean, think about these. Think about these terms regarding children. This is how a culture gets corrupted in its soul, my friend. When we see the precious gift of children that God has given us, as a source of distress, as a source of um, misery or pressure upon our lives. I am a father, and I understand that children can be a handful, but they are a, a blessing from God 1,000%. Might not always feel like that, but if you stay with it, and if you raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord— there's a good chance that your kids are going to bless your life and bless the world. Let us first revisit what God says about um, life, and by that I mean babies. Did you know that it was God's first commandment to man to have babies? His first commandment. The first commandment of the Bible is not, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's in the Ten Commandments. This is in the Decalogue. But the very first command God made to man was this in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Here's the command, be fruitful and what? Multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. In other words, Adam and Eve, get, baby, get busy and make babies. That's God's first command to mankind. And let us never forget what God says in the Psalms uh, about children. Psalm 127 verse three, behold. In other words, look at this, check this out. That's the word behold. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, not a distress, a reward. Verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children born in one's youth. That, 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 but scripture is absolutely categorically clear that if you have children, you flourish. You flourish. Think about an arrow in a warrior's hand. You pull that arrow back, and it's hard to pull that arrow back. But when you release it into the air, like a father or mother releases their child into life after 18 or 20-some-odd years of, of raising them and disciplining them and pulling them back in restraint, you release them to the world, and your life outlives you through your children. Never forget that our Lord Jesus Christ came as a conception in the womb of Mary and John the Baptist responded in Elizabeth's womb to his presence when Mary showed up in Elizabeth's house. Listen to what Luke chapter 1 verse 41 says. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, now they were both pregnant, Elizabeth with John the Baptist and Mary with Jesus Christ. The baby, that is John the Baptist, leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed, blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
a categorical misunderstanding for many in our age today is a heart issue, is a theological issue, and not a political issue that we've got to understand as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, that the woman's womb is the source of all life on this planet for mankind, that God has chosen sovereignly to use women to bring about every human being on the face of the earth. I know that men have done great things and men have conquered nations and men have invented great scientific discoveries, but every great man was born of a woman. You don't get a single great man on this planet without the delivery of a woman's womb. Of course, the one exception is Adam. But he came from dirt. And he didn't do so well, did he? But every great man. And we've got to remember this as Christians that when we approach this issue, fundamentally, we understand that God has given us this precious gift of life. And there is no such thing as an illegitimate child. There are plenty of illegitimate parents. There are no mistaken childs. There are plenty of parents who make mistakes. There is no such thing as an unwanted child for your father in heaven loves every single one of them and wants every single one of them to be saved and to be part of his kingdom. My friends, the language around this issue has got to be shaped by scripture. If we go to the Bible cam, Psalm 139, verse 14, 13, sorry. You formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. In other words, when you were stitched together, you were not a clump of cells in your mother's womb. You were not a fetus, okay? You were the design of the divine. And there is no greater accolade we can give you in your life. Should you never win a reward? Should you never score A's in high school or college? Should you never get your master's degree or doctorate degree? Can I tell you that just being a conceived human in the womb of your mother validates your existence for God, your father, the author of creation is in the mix of putting you together. My friends, that, not politics, is the baseline argument of this entire issue. With that being said, we should probably know some things about abortion and political opinion or popular opinion about abortion. What you probably didn't know about abortion, a couple things. Number one, women are more pro-life than men by a measure of 52% to 45%, which again begs the question, why should we listen to men on this issue when it is women who are far more apt to believe that that life inside their body is a living being? Oh, by the way, that number, 52%, is already one point higher from 2018. So the number is moving in the right direction. It's going higher, not lower. By the way, 59% of abortions are from already moms. That is astounding to me that you would give birth and then see another pregnancy as a detriment to your life. Are you not raising your children right? Are you a failure as a mother? What I think this comes down to is that a mother wants to be her own God, her own origin of her own ideals and her life, and does not want the impediment 
of God the Father sovereignly selecting her to give birth to another child. Really, I mean, that's really what it is. Let me tell you our story. My wife and I, we had a third child without planning it. We, 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 were, we were really interested in having a third child, but we thank God today. He is keeping us young. He has shaped our lives in so many ways, and he is precious to both of us in so many ways. And, and we thank God that he was sovereign in that situation and overruled our desire to, to, to regarding having children. And I just wonder about that number, 59%, almost 60% of abortions from already moms. Did you know that? It's crazy. Europe's laws, by the way, are far more stringent and restrictive than America's laws. And this, this is a shocker to many who love to compare American politics to Europe, who want America to follow the trajectory of Europe. But Europe is actually far more stringent and restrictive on, um, on abortion rights. For, for instance, while Roe v. Wade allowed in principle abortion for up to 24 weeks, most European countries only allow abortion up to 14 weeks. See, the laws on the books that are going in place in places like Texas, Mississippi, and Florida are right around that number that Europe holds for when abortion should no longer be allowed. 14, 12, 14, 16 weeks. Uh, by the way, Finland and the UK do not even allow for an abortion on request. You have to provide reasonable evidence of a need for it. In Italy, 70% of OBGYNs, 70% of OBGYNs practice conscientious objection to the practice of abortion. 70% in Italy. Poland restricts abortion access except for rape, incest in the life of the mother. And in Malta and Andorra, and of course the Vatican, abortion is totally illegal. Uh, here's another fact about abortion. Most Americans want restriction on abortion, but do not want Roe overturned. Now this is ironic, and uh, we will get to that reasoning in just a moment. But here's the last thing I want to share with you. The church and the Bible are resoundingly pro-life in word and in history. I'm bringing this up because of a progressive secular Christian named Kristen Cobes Dumez. Now here's, you want to talk about irony of ironies. Um, she is a professor of history at Calvin University and she makes a lot of secular progressive arguments in the Christian theological arguments of, you know, the online Twitter sphere, Christian Twitter. And she says this. Actually, let me let her make the claim and listen for it at the end of her speech here. Watch. With the politicization of abortion um, by the late 1970s, uh, the rise of the moral majority, folks like Jerry Falwell and Paul Weyrich helped make abortion kind of the primary mobilizing issue for the Christian right. And so from that point on, this complicated moral territory receded. And I certainly grew up in a uh, kind of evangelical culture where life began at conception. There was no debate. And pro-life is the Christian response. Anti-abortion is the only acceptable view. But that kind of hard line on Listen, abortion is of relatively recent origin. Not true. It is not of relatively recent origin. And the reason why is because we actually have documents of the church. One of the things that the Jews and the church have been really good at throughout, throughout history is keeping records, like documents. And, and here's what we do know for a fact. No, the anti-abortion or pro-life movement did not start with Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. It has been rooted in Christian history. Ironically, now again, she works at Calvin University, named for John Calvin, the great reformer of the church from the 1600s. And Calvin himself wrote in his commentary on Exodus 21:22, quote, for the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of his mother, 
is already a human being and it is almost a monstrous crime, monstrous crime, to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. That is kind of ironic that the Calvin University history professor doesn't know Calvin's own history on abortion. You say, well, maybe the reformers got wise to it, but the early church, they had questions, right? And people will always say this. Well, the early church didn't know when life began. And, and uh, let's go back to Aquinas and let's go back to, you know, Ignatius and let's go back to Origen. They had, they had bad views about, about uh, you know, the human being and conception and life and all that kind of stuff. Well, Let's go even further back. How about that? Let's go back to a document called the Didache. The Didache was a handbook that was written by the church fathers. These are the the sons of the apostles, if you will. They lived from about 50 AD to about 150 AD. And they were the ones who carried the message of the apostles to, to the church in the first two centuries of Christianity. Well, they had to have some normalcy throughout the scattered church in the Roman world. They, they created a handbook. It was called the Didache. We have copies of it still to this day. In that handbook, in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. That was written in a handbook to the church circa 8050 to 8080. Okay? The church has historically and theologically been pro-life from conception in word and in deed. And to make the claim that this is a relatively new advancement, as Dumez does, is both divorced from history and theology. My point here is to be Christian is to be pro-life. To be Christian is to be pro-life from conception to the grave and even beyond the grave, right? Because we believe in the resurrection, that the death that we will die in this earth will not be the end. Now, more of what you may not know, even with Roe overturned, 21 states would ban or further restrict abortion. Those states, by the way, account for nearly 15% of the abortions performed annually. But abortion will still remain legal in 16 states, including my home state of Massachusetts, New York, and California, and the District of Columbia. Now the federal level uh, of abortion rights is off the table, and voters in states may decide the fate of abortion in their own states, including three upcoming in this next election cycle. The legal status of abortion will remain the same in 10 states. And again, I will bring you back to this idea, which I said earlier. Most Americans want restriction on abortion, but do not want Roe overturned, which is tremendously ironic. Let me explain why. Um, Roe being overturned does not eliminate abortion nationwide. It just doesn't. And and what's going to happen now is that pro-choice states are probably going to go more pro-choice, even more radical, perhaps more pro-infanticide as we're going to get to in just a moment. And and pro-life states are going to get more radically pro-life and outlaw any and all forms of abortion, including the morning after pill, probably. But this is from 538. Nate Silver puts this chart up on his site about uh, America's views on abortion, which often contradict themselves. So the idea here first is that in the first trimester of a pregnancy, 60% of Americans say abortion is allowed, 60% in the first three months of a pregnancy. That number drops more than by half in the second trimester. Only 28% of Americans say that abortion should be legal. Only 28%. Now, Roe, the law, the, 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 the court decision, super court decision, only protects the right to, to abortion until the last few weeks of the second trimester. 
So Roe is in agreement with the vast majority, I'm sorry, is, is in disagreement with the vast majority of Americans on the issue of second trimester abortions. Yet, the share of adults who said they would not like to see Roe overturned is 69%, which is kind of ironic because more Americans disagree with Roe's conclusions. That's the irony. And, and what it really reveals, what it portrays, is that most Americans are not doing their homework on the issue of abortion. Even in states passing laws restricting abortions, 30% of the residents were aware of the restrictions, 44% said they weren't aware, and 26% said they were unsure. That means that more than half, almost 75% of Americans in states where they are restricting abortions are either unaware or don't care to know what they're doing regarding the restrictions of abortions. See, what has happened is Roe v. Wade has become this political hot-button topic that nobody knows about. They just get a, get separated, segregated into little camps, and then lob bombs at each other. And we need to know the truth. And as Christians, we need to know the truth. And I want to take a roundabout look at something here and go into the mindset of the pro-abortion movement. Back to that issue of moms who have abortions. Back to that issue, right? We talked about that. It's a 60, almost 60% of abortions are from people with women with children. So this piece, opinion piece from BuzzFeed, is all you need to see about the mindset of those women. Okay, the title of the article is Many Women Who Have Abortions Are Already Mothers. Here are their stories and the subtext. Quote, I knew, I, I knew that to be the kind of parent that my two kids needed, I couldn't have any more kids. End quote. Really? H how do you know that? How do you know that you couldn't do more than you think? And younger generation, listen to me. I know I used to hate it when people said that to me when I was the younger generation. But can I please tell you, will you please listen to me and just tell yourself right now, I can do this. I think that's a big problem for the younger generation because you've got so much access to so many things, so many people. And I feel it too because I'm on social media and I can see things happening. And in some ways, this phone inhibits your creativity. It inhibits your abilities. It inhibits your can-do spirit because you see so many people doing so many other things. You see their highlight reel and then you know your real life is not like that. And so then you compare your ability to their highlight reel and your ability behind closed doors does not match their ability on the highlight reel. And so you think, okay, I guess I'm no good and I shouldn't even try. Nonsense. What does the scriptures teach us except that through God, we can do all things. We can do more than we imagine, ask or think. We can, we can do great and mighty things. And what the mindset of the pro-abortion movement is that I am not able I'm not able. Back to this article, and let me just unpack the first story that she shares of this woman's idea of having a, a pregnancy after having children. One of this, I guess they changed, she changed the name of Kate, but Kate had a medical abortion on the eve of Mother's Day 2016. How sad is that? <laughs> How sad is that? She said, for me, the termination was an act of love for my other children and reaffirmation of my love for my relationship, she says, whispering into the phone so as not to wake her sleeping baby. What on earth? If I hadn't had an abortion, my life would be over. Really? Really? You know that for sure. I know I wouldn't, I know I would have taken my own life and left many children without a mom. So you're both selfish in the fact that if you have more children, uh, you can't have more children because you can't, you don't believe you can have more children. And if you had more children, you would kill yourself and your children that exist that you claim to love would no longer have a mom. That's called self-love. In the last days, Paul says, men will be lovers of self. When Kate fell pregnant, she says, going on in the story. She was battling a then undiagnosed mental illness that she says was a, quote, threat to her life, end quote. I became incredibly low in my mood and became a threat to myself in terms of self-harm and suicide. Now the 38-year-old says it threatened the stability of my life and in particular the relationship that I had with my partner. The conception the couple was using had failed. Time 
kind of stood still when I held that pregnancy test in my hand. She says it was an immediate decision that I would terminate because I can't have more children. And if I do have more children, I'm going to abandon my children through suicide. That's the mindset. It is a self-interested mindset. And here's something that I have I've researched about uh, the, the celebrity in culturalization, in culturalization, in culturalization, in culture, whatever, the celebrity influence on our culture. There we go. Drew Pinsky wrote a book. Drew Pinsky is the psychologist to the stars, a therapist to the celebrities. And he talks about this with celebrities. This is a celebrity mindset. When you are exposed to a celebrity lifestyle, he talks about the fact that they get into the lifestyle because not they, not that they love themselves, but they see, they hate themselves. But if they can convince another enough people to love them, then, then they will not love, hate themselves as much. And I think that's what's happening through social media in our generation, that kids hate themselves, but if they can convince enough people to love them on the outside, then maybe they can find validation on the inside. And really what that is, is this idea that I hate myself is really just self-love guised in false humility that spills over into attempts to idolize my own self-importance in the eyes of other people. And this kind of mindset is so inherent in the abortion issue. Because a mother will kill herself if she has another children and abandon her children. That is self-love. That is, I need my children to worship the ground I walk on or really see me as a successful mother or I'm a failure and therefore I deserve to die. That is self-love, self-hatred at the same time. And it is this kind of mindset that is really at the heart of the issue of abortion. I'm not just doing a political talk here, guys. I'm doing a theological talk. You need to understand what is the heart of this issue, both from a theological and scriptural uh, mindset, but also from a human condition mindset. And we have got to move beyond the simplification of the politicization of this issue and get to the heart of both the, 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 the mind of man, the heart of man, and the heart of the scriptures and the heart of the gospel. Let me say this, shifting gears. Almost every justice that just voted, at least as far as we know, to overturn Roe, was grilled in their Senate confirmation hearings over this issue, Roe v. Wade, because this issue is the issue of the day, right? This is the slavery issue of the day. I really believe that. And when slavery was an issue in this country, remember that half the country was pro-slavery. The good side won. Today, this is the issue. Half the country is pro-choice, half the country is pro-life, on and on it goes. Now, I watched those confirmation hearings for the, the, uh, the uh, judicial appointments by Republican nominees because they tended to be more pro-life in their judicial philosophy. So they were always overgrilled by the Democrats because they thought the Democrats were so afraid of Roe being overturned uh, that, you know, they had to make sure that these guys would stand by precedent in Roe v. Wade and not overturn it. Almost every one of the ones that voted now to overturn Roe v. Wade, except for, I believe, Gorsuch and Comey Barrett were um, willing to say Roe was precedent. Why does that matter? Because they just overruled precedent, a very rare thing in the Supreme Court. That means that in their hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee, they either lied intentionally and said underhandedly, I believe Roe is precedent and it will stand. I remember Brett Kavanaugh saying that almost verbatim. Or they did what we're all doing right now, which is they watched the pro-choice movement claim total victory before it was actually achieved and then exposed themselves to the world for the evil that they really embody. Listen to that again. They either lied at their Senate confirmation hearing or they just watched what we've all been watching for the, several, for the past several years as the pro-choice movement exposed their evil for what it really was. 
I'm a big believer in the idea that when people show you who they are, believe them. When people show you that they are evil, that they are gossips, that they are slanderers, that they are liars, believe them. When people show you that they hate life, believe them. Um, what I'm saying is that the pro-choice movement is dying because they overplayed their hand. That's really what I believe over the last six to seven years in this country. I want to show you a series of videos to give you context of why we got here and how we got here. Uh, the first video, give me, let me give you the context, is the video of a Virginia rep named Todd Gilbert who is asking a state rep in Virginia, Kathy Tran, about a bill that would introduce an up-to-the-moment-of-birth abortion law. Up-to-the-moment-of-birth, woman dilated, we can still kill the baby. So let's just watch this video because it is insane, and this is how the pro-choice movement overplayed their hand. Watch. Delegate Tran. Yes, sir. How late in a pregnancy would your bill apply if a physician would simply willing to certify that that the uh, continuation of the pregnancy would impair the mental health of, of the woman? How, how late are we talking about? In well, so, so the way the suggestion that we've um, made in the bill is to say it's in the third uh, trimester and at the, you know, with the certification of the physician, so. So how late in the third trimester would you be able to do, to do that? You know, I'm, it's very unfortunate that our, the, our physicians, uh, witnesses, were not able to attend today to speak specifically. No, no I'm talking that. about your bill. How, the yeah, how, late, I mean, how late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the of the woman? Or physical health. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm um, talking about the mental health. That's so, the key I mean, issue. Mental through health. the third trimester. The third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Okay. But to the end of the third trimester. Yep. I don't think we have a limit in the bill. So, um, listen to this question. Where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, of, that she is about to give a birth, would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a you know a decision Pass that the, the doctor, the physician, and the woman. I would understand make that. At that. I'm point. asking if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that. Yes. Okay. There is. There, that's the moment. That's the moment that things started to shift because this in Virginia, Virginia is where close to and embodies part of Washington D.C., the epicenter of our politics, right? The epicenter of our government, our federal level government. And if you don't believe that there are demons alive and active all around Washington, D.C. and the surrounding communities and states, you are poorly informed about Scripture and the doctrine of the spiritual warfare that we are always in. So here on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. is a state trying to make it legal for a doctor to just sign off on someone's life who is about to be born. Just sign off, stick a scalpel in the back of its skull and suck out its brains with a vacuum as it's about to be born. That turned the tide. I, I believe that that was the pro-choice movement overplaying their hand. Now, full disclosure, there was public outcry after Kathy Tran's comments. Then she retracted her statement and she said, quote, I shouldn't have said that because certainly infanticide is not allowed in Virginia, end quote. So ironically, after she said infanticide is not allowed in Virginia, 
a few months later, another video, which you're probably very familiar with, surfaced, of then-governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, who was being proposed a hypothetical situation where a severely deformed newborn infant could be left to die at the behest of the mother. Watch this. So in this particular example, uh, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. So, so I think this was really blown out of proportion. An infant is born disabled. A human being is born. A human being that had been woven together by God. And you can have a theology of suffering and, and deformity. But what does Jesus what does Jesus show us in the Gospels? That he heals deformities. He heals diseases. Ultimately, every human being with a deformity will in the resurrection be healed. Or in this life, they will be healed by miraculous power of God. And here is this man saying that that person who had just been knitted together by the Heavenly Father, this is a doctor, a former doctor, by the way, would have a discussion. Would have a discussion about whether or not that living baby needed to be kept alive. The pro-choice movement overplayed their hand. And this has been going on for several years. And then there was another video. And this one just freaks you out. It was when a pro-life protester is outside an abortion clinic and was confronted by a demon-voiced doctor. Watch this. You gotta repent, sir. You gotta repent, sir, for murdering babies. Why? Because it's a sin before God. Why? Well. Stinky breath. Yeah, Why? That's, pretty, that's pretty evil of you, sir. Yeah, I am. And then I hope and pray that you... Yeah. Ha. Well, that's what you do to babies, huh? Yeah, I love it. You love it, huh? Yeah, I do. Okay, I hope that you come to Christ, sir. Oh, I never go to Christ. I hope that you come to Christ, No, sir. I don't go to Christ. Yeah, you... I you, don't listen to Christ. You, you will have a darkened heart, sir. I do have a darkened yeah. heart, yeah. You have a darkened heart. I do, I do, very, very much And so. you will stand yeah. before God in judgment yes, day? Yes, I will, every day. You will stand before God in judgment Yes, day, I will, every day. All of the babies that I you have I love killed. it, I love it. Yeah, keep tearing the babies yeah, apart. Yeah, I will. Keep tearing the babies I apart. I will. Keep, keep tearing the babies apart. Yeah, sir, the babies, their blood screams from the ground. That was Dr. Robert Santella, and just two years after that video, my friends, he died. The abortionist with the demon voice was suddenly and unexpectedly awaiting eternal judgment with demons. That's the pro-choice movement overplaying their hand. We have been exposed. What I'm saying is we've been exposed to the reality of their hate for life, their, dis their, their disregard for the author of life. The rage against uh, the pro-life movement is a rage against God. Don't miss that. Who could forget six years ago when David Daladine of the Center for American Progress, he, op he did the sting operation for uh, against Planned Parenthood and got the doctors to uh, talk about what they do during abortion to harvest body parts. Quote from the Planned Parenthood doctor, we've been very good at getting heart, lung, liver, because we know that so that I'm not going to crush that part. I'm going to basically crush it below. I'm going to crush this a human being, crush above, and I'm going to see if I can get it all intact. This is the heart of the pro-choice movement. And, and, and then we wonder why the tide has turned in our court system, why the justices that had been grilled at the judicial nomination hearings 
who said first that Roe was precedent have now either changed their mind or had underhandedly lied on the, on the spot because they knew, they knew that this was evil. And guess what? The pro-choice movement is still overplaying their hand in response to the leak of the Supreme Court decision. This from the Daily Wire, pro-life group attacked in Wisconsin. If abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. The headquarters of a pro-life organization in Wisconsin was set on fire Sunday morning in what appears to be a politically motivated attack. And they sprayed graffiti on the wall. They uh, set the place on fire. A Molotov cocktail was tossed into the center and uh, did not explode by God's grace. Uh, now we're seeing reports that Catholic churches are being disrupted during their worship. This is a federal crime, by the way. But please, 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 and I'm, I mean this, pro-choice movement, please keep doing this. Please keep showing the world who you are because the world is listening and you only have yourself to blame. After the attack on the pro, uh, on the, um, you know, the, the Christian pro-life clinic in Wisconsin, uh, a member of the press, Caroline Riley, who works for Rewire News Group, posted the following tweet. More of this. May these people never know a moment of peace or safety until they rot in the ground. That was her response to the attack, violent attack on the pro-life clinic in Wisconsin and the inevitable closing of the Twitter account as soon as the outrage followed, like literally hours within the tweet. Please, pro-choice people, please keep making your arguments because the world is watching and you are losing. How about Bill Maher? Bill Maher on uh, HBO's Real Time. He discussed the leak of the Supreme Court decision. And and this was his take. This is a confirmed lifelong bachelor, by the way, and comedian, court jester. Court jester is more appropriate because that's what they are. And they opine on political issues and pretend to know what they're talking about. But he said this week on, on Real Time, quote, I never thought life itself was particularly precious. <laughs> I don't. Applause from the audience. I'm serious. I think life is for the living. And until you're born, you're not living. Now watch how his argument even breaks down as he's saying it. Okay, I mean, yes, it's becoming a life, but you know, it's not. And you know, we wouldn't miss you if you were not born because we never knew you. Yes. Okay. Please, pro-choice people, please keep speaking. Please keep shouting it from the roof. Please keep protesting and, and exposing your evil to the rest of the world because you're losing and you know it. Um... Tell that, by the way, Bill Maher, to the woman who just had her third miscarriage, that no one would miss you because you weren't born. Tell that to the living person, the disabled person, whose mother was advised to abort and did not follow that advice and by God's grace now has a life and a chance. My mother conceived me at age 34 and Roe v. Wade was three years old at the time and my mother's doctor asked her if she really wanted to bring me to the term. Now, of course she did. She prayed for me. She wanted me. She planned me. But this madness has killed how many others who would have impacted this world for good? I mean, imagine my mother not being a Christian, not having conviction, not knowing that, that, that God is the author of life. And just the doctor introduces the idea of maybe you don't want it. You're 34. Maybe you don't want this child. And I would have been ripped limb from limb in the womb, a horrible, vicious death that I would have felt, which science is also proving. I remember the story of Mother Teresa saying, I prayed to God. Why don't you send someone who can cure cancer? To which he replied, I did send them. And the baby was aborted before it had a chance to live. I remember hearing that story. And it's a profound thought about the potential of human life and those who are knitted together in 
their mother's womb. Here's my ultimate point. Are you ready for it? Don't blame the pro-life movement for the pro-choice movement's blatant evil. Don't do it. They are showing the world who they are, and the world, in this case the Supreme Court, has decided to do something very rare. Overrule precedent and send this issue back to the states where it belongs, where we can do the hard work of getting legislatures changed and voting in the right people who will take this issue out of our history. Because one day, and I guarantee you, one day, there will be marches through the streets blaming the people who did not speak up for the unborn in this country for the inequities of this country, just like they did in 2020, blaming the historical silence of the church and the anti-segregationist movement for the inequities that we are experiencing today. Do you, do you, do you understand what is thought right in one generation is often thought evil in the subsequent generations and that is the case with abortion. And I long for a day where we look back on this point in history and say, thank God that Christians spoke up and Bible preachers spoke up and pro-life people spoke, like, spoke up for what is obviously true, that these are humans in the life of their, in their, in the womb of their mother. But all we're seeing really is similar to what I saw in the movie Amazing Grace. If you haven't seen this movie, by the way, you should watch this movie. It's the story of William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce, who entered the slave trade in Britain in the 1700s, toward the slave ship. He was not interested in um, ending slavery at all, or slave trade at all. And someone, a friend, took him through a slave ship, and he smelt the, the rotting flesh on that slave ship, the remains of it anyway. And he saw the chains, and he saw the cages that they put human beings in, and he vomits in the scene. He vomits. And it changes his life and he makes a resolute decision from that day forward to end slavery. And that all to say this, we're going to do a deep endopedia on that guy right there, William Wilberforce. Let's dig in. So William Wilberforce, I believe, is the archetype for how the pro-life movement can win the argument in our generation. If abortion goes the way of slavery in the West, it will, because, it will be because of Christ-centered people like him who fight against the public opinion and get the job done even at great cost to themselves. So William Wilberforce was a child of British privilege. He was elected to Parliament and, and self-confessed did little to nothing in his early years with his post. He said, quote, the first years in Parliament, I did nothing nothing to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. In other words, I lived for myself. I was all about me. That was his life in the British government for the first several years as a child of privilege. And then he entered into a season of very uh, strong depression. And he went through sorrow and started to question what his life was all about. And a change took place after this bout of depression. On Easter Sunday, 1786, he became a devout Christian. He was born again. And then he began practicing rigorous self-examination and discipline. And then as he was changed inwardly, he started to see the corruption outwardly in the political world of Great Britain at the time. He was frustrated with rampant political corruption. Corruption. He considered leaving Parliament to serve full-time as a minister, but a friend named John Newton convinced him to remain in government and fight to abolish the slave trade. Newton himself was a former slave trade captain and author of the world-famous hymn Amazing Grace. Well, Wilberforce followed Newton's advice and took it upon himself to end the slave trade in England. It would take him 46 years, and he would suffer constant sickness. He would be hindered constantly by political opponents and public opinion. 
and a, a, a very powerful pro-slave trade political class. Even the British monarchy itself at the time was in favor of the slave trade. He fought off severe bouts of depression beyond his salvation, after his salvation, an opioid addiction, and eventually rose to pass the first anti-slavery legislation in Britain in 1807. He said, quote, So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. Now listen to this, and this is very important. At the time of Wilberforce's movement, the vast majority of Britain was pro-slave trade. At the time of Wilberforce's movement, no one could have imagined the economy without the slave trade. At the time of Wilberforce's movement, more people supported the slave trade than were against it. At the time of Wilberforce's movement, even the political class, a.k.a. the monarchy, rejected his ideas. Why do I keep emphasizing at the time? Because that's where we are. Who cares what popular, popular opinion believes about this? Who cares what the celebrities believe about this? Who cares what the big tech, social media, government, industrial, pharmaceutical complex thinks about this issue? Most of the time in human history, the majority got it wrong. Most notably, when they came out of Egypt, the majority wanted to go back. Or when they expected the promised land, the majority didn't want to go in. We don't follow popular opinion. We follow the principles of God's word. And Christians, you've got to learn to do this in this pro-life fight. You've got to learn to be okay with people hating what you believe and not needing their approval. That's what William Wilberforce did. Mark Galley writes about the, uh, the, the pathway to abolition. He says the pathway to abolition for William Wilberforce was blocked by vested interests, parliamentary filibustering, entrenched bigotry, internal, pol internal politics, slave unrest, personal sickness, and political fear. Bills introduced by Wilberforce were defeated in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805. Again and again and again, he suffered setback after setback after setback after setback, and he looked like he was David facing God. Goliath, but how many know from scripture, that's all we need. We just need to be David in the face of Goliath. And who cares what people do? Who cares? Who cares if people don't like it? It's right. And it needs to be fought for. I have hope. I have hope because in the 2020 election, everybody got so worked up. Christians, a lot of evangelical Christians got worked up that Donald Trump lost. But did you know that 16 pro-life women were elected to Congress? 16 pro-life women. And by the way, it just says a lot when it's a pro-life woman getting elected. And seven of those seats were taken away from pro-abortion Democrats. The article that I'm reading here from Life News also says, moreover, pro-abortion Democrats failed to flip a single state legislature despite spending historic sense of money. In New Hampshire, Republicans won a trifecta, unexpectedly flipping both chambers of the legislature while holding on to the governor's office in Texas. Our team helped defeat pro-abortion radical Wendy Davis. Remember her? She filibustered for 24 hours in Texas for a pro-abortion bill. And more than a dozen others like her at the state level while electing pro-life champions like Beth Van uh, uh, Dune. In U.S. House uh, races, our efforts succeeded in thwarting pro-abortion extremists' plans to infiltrate the Texas legislature and redraw district maps next year, solidifying the state as a stronghold in the fight to defend unborn children. The point is this, that in the lower-level electoral map, the pro-life movement is gaining groundswell that we have never seen before, and this is good. It might have been a great blessing to the church for the most pro-abortion president in history to get elected, a.k.a. Joe Biden. Because the groundswell reaction, 
the grassroots reaction, the David-like reaction to it has been astronomical. And we are riding a, we are riding a tidal wave of pro-life voting and the legislative changes that will, I believe, ultimately wipe out this hideous practice once and for all one day. And this from the pro, uh, post-millennial. A CNN poll shows that those who support overturning Roe are twice as likely to vote in midterms. Which means we might be on the cusp of a Wilberforce movement. It might not be popular. It might be hated. But it might be over. It might be soon won. Roe v. Wade, 1973 to 2022, at least as far as the leak is concerned. But abortion, the fight against it, continues. It is not totally over. Let us pray that the church has what it takes to be a Wilberforce and done what it has done in every century before it to reject public acceptance and fight for what we know is right. It was the Chief Justice Henry Blackburn who on the heels of the Roe v. Wade decision, a lifelong Methodist and the Chief Justice at the time, who famously regretted the decision shortly after, he said this, 50 years from now, depending on the fate of the proposed constitutional amendment, abortion will probably be not as great a legal issue. I think it will continue to be a moral issue. However, yes, you are right. And that moral issue is worth fighting for. Speaking of other things that are worth fighting for, speaking of other things that need to end, unlimited access to LGBTQ content in the classroom and in media. And that brings me to really good news. Really, really, really good. That's really good news. It's good. So I love when secular publications announce something that is actually bad news to them, but great news to us, great news to Christians and Bible-valued people, okay? This from Rolling Stone, of all places. Republican senators want TV ratings to warn viewers about disturbing LGBTQ content. Yay! Like, they they presented in this article, you know, five Republican senators have urged TV parental guideline monitoring board to update its ratings for certain children's shows to include warnings about what they describe as disturbing LGBTQ content, namely irreversible and harmful experimental treatments for mental disorders like gender dysphoria. And they list the, the names, and then they lament more about the Disney executive being attacked and all that stuff, and on and on and on goes in the article. And I would like to say, yes, you go, senators. Fight to defend our children. Fight to protect our children from this indoctrination. And that is the end of that segment. Really good news. And maybe we should just do one little COVID crazy because I love, I love the segment. If you have a physical covering with one layer, you put another layer on, it just makes common sense. This week in COVID crazy. I think I only do this on a regular basis so that I can make sure to get that little warning down there and let me know if it is down there in the comments of, you know, make sure that you check out the official CDC website because this guy over here with the big beard is misinforming you. Um, I, I just, I love, I, it's a badge of honor. I love it. By the way, help me fight against it by liking, subscribing, and clicking the notification bell. Okay, why is Bill Gates calling the shots in uh, COVID lockdowns and why are we talking to him? And why does he keep saying we, we, we about all the things that we need to do regarding lockdowns in the future should another surge of COVID happen? Watch this. If, if all we would have had to do was, say, a 45-day lockdown, I think we would have gotten pretty good compliance. It's as the lockdown starts extending out uh, and, you know, the lockdown hasn't dropped the cases to zero. You know, so the counterfactual of, okay, how much worse would it have been if we hadn't had this lockdown, it's unclear. There was a lot of uncertainty about, for example, school shutdowns. Right. Uh, to this day, 
you know, there's still arguments about uh, how many cases that avoided. It's pretty clear because young people uh, don't get sick from the disease very often uh, that we probably, if we knew everything we know today, we would have shut schools down a lot less than we did during this pandemic. I mean, yes, it's tricky for the elder adults. It's tricky uh, in a lot of ways. And you mean by that high school and under? Exactly. Uh, You know, for college, going virtual tends to work awfully well. The infection levels are a little higher as you get up into that age group. But K through 12, we have a learning deficit that will take us a long time to erase that. And sadly, it's a deficit where the inner city is where it's almost two years, suburban schools less, private schools in some cases, uh, like my kids, almost no deficit at all. Right to jail, right away. Yeah, right to jail, right away, exactly. Uh, It just disturbs me, that video, for two reasons. Number one, um, everything that he's now saying is what Ron DeSantis in Florida said a year and a half ago. (laughs) And Ron DeSantis did the exact opposite that Bill Gates a year and a half ago would have said was wrong. And it's now acceptable to say it. And now he gets to look like he knows what he's talking about and he gets to be talked to. Can, can we just make a statement? Bill Gates is not a doctor. He is not a doctor. He also is not a scientist. He is not an epidemiologist. He is not a virologist. Do you know what he is? He's a nerd who's really good at investing. Because at age 65, Bill Gates saw his net worth increase from $98 billion in 2020 to over $124 billion in 2021. And you know what he invested in mostly? Vaccines. You've invested $10 billion in vaccinations over the last two decades, and you figured out the return on investment for that. And it kind of stunned me. Can you walk us through the math? Over a 20 to 1 return. So if you just look at the economic benefits, uh, that's a pretty strong number compared to anything else. I think the numbers that you ran through were if you had put that money into an S&P 500 and reinvested the dividends, you'd come up with something like $17 billion, but you think it's $200 billion. Here. And that is the reality of COVID crazy. Just be aware. Another shot at the big tech, governmental, pharmaceutical, industrial complex. Enough being ignorant of these realities. That is the show, ladies and gentlemen. Subscribe. Support, cash tag, or timhatchlife.com slash support. Tune in for the deep dive tomorrow night. I will be back with Romans chapter 13. I am so looking forward to that. The deep end is brought to you by Tim Hatch Live, and I am so happy you guys were here. I hope it's helped you share the video, and I'll see you tomorrow night on the deep dive.